wanted to start a little bit late because we got out of church a little bit late. So wanted to give people time to get here. Uh, you should recognize this music. I'm going easy on you because I keep playing the same thing, just different parts of it. It's still The Planets. Uh, if you haven't read that book, The Narnia Code, um, about how the planets of the medieval cosmology uh, conform to the Chronicles of Narnia, I really encourage you to do that. It's an amazing, amazing tale. So I'm going to begin us with a word of prayer, and then we are going to try something really bold tonight, and we're going to try to get through three chapters in one night. So we'll see whether it is possible or not. Uh, it will be a wild ride, uh, but let us pray for the help of the Lord in this time. Lord Jesus, we thank you so much for the gift of this time together. We thank you for C.S. Lewis and for this book and how it speaks so eloquently into our lives. We pray that you would open our hearts to hear whatever you might have for us and that you would bless our time together with your Holy Spirit. For we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So uh, I wanted to commend to you the handouts, as always. Uh, tonight there are three Two of them a little bit unusual. One of them is a screenshot of a Twitter feed, which is not my usual style um, for handouts. And the other one is a copy of all of the reflection questions um, that we haven't had time to reflect on that I thought might be helpful for you. But this Twitter feed I just happened to come across, and it's from Eric Metaxas. I don't know if you all know who Eric Metaxas is. He is one of the great Christian intellectuals of this era, uh, he is based in New York City. He runs a program called Socrates in the City. He's written several award-winning uh, biographies, one of Dietrich Bonhoeffer, another one of Martin Luther. Um, he is brilliant, uh, went to Yale, uh, but he, he's a huge C.S. Lewis fan. And I just came across this little thing in his feed where he had posted a picture of the silver chair saying, one of my absolute favorites, read it if you haven't. Staggering. And then somebody had uh, posted on the Twitter feed, really? I don't think I've ever got through it. What's so great about it? <laughs> and so his response, and you'll only get this if you've read ahead, his response was, the recipe for man pies. <laughs> Which is, once you get to that, you'll understand. And then he says, ha, actually, a ma no, the response is a masterfully intriguing reply. And then he says, and everything about Underland and Bism and Gog, mind-blowing. The salamanders living in the fire, sheer genius. So, you think I'm enthusiastic. Uh, so anyway, uh, I commend that to you and... Get your friends reading The Silver Chair, even if they can't come to class. It is a great book. So um, we're going to fly through some of the things we've talked about before. Um, obviously, Silver Chair is in the sequence of the Chronicles of Darnia, six or four, depending on which scholars you want to align yourself with. Uh, and it is brilliant and a work of genius, particularly because it works on these three different levels. One is as a fantastic children's story. For a six- or seven-year-old, they'll be riveted by it. It is also a fictional reworking of Plato's Allegory of the Cave. We'll get to that later on. We're not quite to that part. And then it also 
uh, is a really wonderful parable about the role of truth, absolute truth, in a culture that is decaying, which might be just a little relevant for us today. So I want us to start with our verse that we always begin with, just remind us that part of what we're trying to learn from the Inklings is about how to set our minds on the things that are above where Christ is, to not be dragged into the mire of this world, but to consciously choose to set our minds. So let's say this together. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me. Practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So that is great, uh, just in terms of words to live by. I'd encourage you to post that somewhere where you see it. Uh, in your daily routine. Uh, The origins of Narnia, we talked about Lewis and his drawings of talking animals uh, that he started doing when he was a mere child. And he didn't just do drawings, he wrote histories to support the drawings, histories of mouse land, which I'm sure you were doing when you were nine. And then we talked about the genesis of Narnia being that picture that came into his mind of a fawn with an umbrella in the snow carrying Christmas passages, packages. And that image stayed with him, came to him when he was a teenager, and stayed with him. And then when these children came, right when war was about to be declared, the evacuees from London and moved into his house, the first group of evacuee children that he kept over the entire period of World War II, he was really disturbed at their lack of imagination, and he decided to tell them tales. And he started writing a tale about four children evacuated from London to the house of an old professor and a magical wardrobe. But he put it down and didn't pick it up again um, until later uh, in the 1940s. So that obviously became The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. And then that grew into this whole series, which Lewis intended for them to work as children's stories, but he was very much of the viewpoint that any children's story that works only for children and isn't really meaningful for adults as well was trash. Um, I picked on Captain Underpants last time. I will do it again. Captain Underpants is not great literature. I'm sorry if that is your favorite book, um, but that is not the kind of children's literature that Lewis would have said brings a culture closer to truth, beauty, and goodness. So um, we talked a little bit about the main characters, Aslan, the great lion, uh, who is Lewis's idea of in uh, an imaginary land such as Narnia, if God were going to send a redeemer into that magical land, what would that redeemer look like? And Aslan, the lion, is the result of that. Caspian, the prince, who's the rightful heir to Narnia, who was almost killed off by his evil uncle, who had been told all his life that Narnia was a fairy tale and an old wives' tale and not to be believed, and then he needed to be practical and focus on learning about business and all of these kinds of things. And then when his uncle tries to kill him, 
He's taken away, spirited away by his tutor, who actually is a dwarf, who had been told all his life that dwarfs didn't exist, that they were mythological. And then he goes out in the forest and discovers the talking badgers and all of the other Narnian creatures and realizes that he's been lied to all his life and that Narnia is real and all of these creatures are real. And so he becomes the king, meets Eustace, who we see in the silver chair, and when he meets Eustace, they become fast friends, but then Eustace, of course, has to go back um, into our world. And so when the children come back at this point in the Narnia Chronicles for the Silver Chair, um, many, many years have passed, and Caspian, instead of being a 20-year-old, is now probably in his late 70s, early 80s. And part of what happened in the book before this one is that Eustace Scrub... Um, our one of our two protagonists, uh, Eustace Scrub, who was one of the most obnoxious people ever portrayed in literature. I would encourage you to go back and read the descriptions of Eustace because you just want to smack him. He's just <laughs> so annoying and awful. Um, but he is transformed by Aslan. He literally turns into a dragon because he's so selfish. He turns into a dragon, and he realizes in his dragon skin and his dragonness that he has been a miserable person and that he needs to change. And Aslan says, I'm the only one who can change you. You need to undress, which means he has to shed the dragon skin. And Aslan says, then I will dress you. And so that's obviously got all sorts of spiritual symbolism in it. And uh, he does that. And Eustace is transformed. But he's not instantly transformed into perfection. Uh, That's one of the things that's so great about these books is they're very real. So Eustace is transformed, but he still has his moments of uh, being a little bit of a pill. So uh, we talked about the five themes that were introduced in Chapter 1. Experiment House, that awful awful school where they are, uh, where there are uh, no real rules and no discipline at all. Everything is treated. Misbehavior is a psychological problem, sort of a victim kind of mentality. There's rampant bullying, and they've thrown out all classical learning and said, essentially, history is bunk, and we're going to teach you progressive things. And, uh, of course, Lewis had lots to say about that. Um, The second major theme in Chapter 1 that is so interesting because it's radical, although we don't realize it's radical, is that Lewis picks a bullied junior high girl as the hero of the story. And he starts off with this bullied junior high girl as crying behind the gym at school for the opening scene of the book. Now, in 1940s and 50s England, that was not usually the way you began a story that you wanted anyone to read. But he shows deep empathy for what this girl is going through. And anybody who's ever been bullied, it would immediately resonate. So uh, 
Eustace also is an outcast. Remember that great first line of uh, The Voyage of the Dawn Treader. There once was a boy named Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. <laughs> and he also, obnoxious bullier, because he's been bullied, he and Jill find each other. And in that beautiful conversation that Lewis recounts in the first chapter, Eustace decides that he is going to live into this change that Aslan has begun in him. And he asks Jill, and he says, can't you tell that I've changed since last term? And as she thinks about it, she says, well, yes, everybody's talking about it. And they, I love the way that Lewis does this, they with capital T, they who are to be feared, the, the bullies of the school, they have noticed that Eustace has been changed and they don't like it at all and they're planning to do something about it. So Jill notices that and that helps give Eustace the courage for this radical risk of radical vulnerability where he decides to share with her from deep within his heart about his experience in Narnia, something that she could have used to make fun of him, to ridicule him, to gain ascendancy in her own social group, and yet he takes the risk to share deeply with her, and she receives it, and it creates this bond between them. But they are an unlikely pair. They are two people that would not naturally have been friends, but they are united in this quest. And one of the things that we're going to see as we walk through the story is the way that God uses them to sharpen one another. Might be a little scripture reference here somewhere. Uh, and then the last theme in chapter one that is important is the whole idea of uh, calling Aslan or Aslan calling. Because you'll remember at the end of chapter one, the children are desperate because the whole gang of bullies is chasing them. And they're away from where the school is. They're behind an area where they could be thrashed and beaten and tortured, as Lewis's referenced earlier, it already happened to them. And so they're desperately calling Aslan and trying to figure out how to get out of there. And so they're trying and trying, calling Aslan's name, and they finally run up to this door in the wall that's always locked. And for a miraculous moment, they realize, oh, it's not locked. And when they open it, on the other side of it is a land that's not what's normally there. And they walk through into Narnia. And then as they, well, actually it's Aslan's country. So they walk into Aslan's country. And then several scenes later, when Jill doesn't yet know who Aslan is, he says, I'm going to talk to you about the task for which I've called you here. And she says, oh, no, 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 you must have made some mistake. You didn't call me here. We were calling you, and that's why we came. Perhaps you've gotten us mixed up with someone else. <laughs> she doesn't quite understand who Aslan is yet. But Aslan then says to her, you could not have called me if I had not been calling you. And we're going to unpack that more later on, but it is a great 
way of getting at predestination and some other big theological concepts going on. So, four themes introduced in chapter two. There is no other stream, sin and its consequences, Aslan's call and task, and the signs. Um, And one thing you'll notice, these themes, some of them are going to be woven through the whole book, so we're going to be coming back to them. So that's why I'm saying introduced, because they're not usually resolved just in one chapter. Uh, Just as an aside, one of the things to note about this book, about one of the many reasons it's so incredible, these chapters are very short, in case you didn't notice that, especially if you take the illustrations out. They're really short, but what you get in terms of characterization, description of place, understanding of the depth of what's going on emotionally, it's absolutely remarkable with this economy of words how much Lewis is able to convey. Tolkien already would have been into volume two by this point. So uh, there is no other stream. Uh, This is a particularly applicable uh, theme. And remember, this is when Jill is so thirsty. She's dying of thirst. She hasn't met Aslan yet. She's in this beautiful, mysterious land, and she's dying of thirst. And so it's very, very, very still and quiet. And she listens and listens, and she can just hear the sound of a babbling brook. And so she follows the sound, and she comes out of the trees, and there's this beautiful stream running clear over these stones, and it looks cool and delicious and inviting. But the only problem is there's a lion lying right next to it. And so she's terrified, and she asks the lion to go away so she can drink. And he says, no. And she says, well, you promise not to interfere with me if I get something to drink. And he says, I make no promise. And she says, oh, dear, I guess I'll have to go somewhere else. I'll have to find another stream. And he says to her, there is no other stream. And she realizes if she doesn't drink, she will die of thirst. And, of course, what Lewis is trying to convey here is the truth about the living water that is in Jesus Christ that is not anywhere else. And we talked about this passage out of John chapter 4 from the woman at the well of the spring rising up to eternal life. And Jesus saying, if you drink the living water, you will never thirst again. Um, And this references back to Jeremiah. They have forsaken me the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, cisterns that cannot hold water. And we talked about the difference between water that's in a cistern that's flat, often dirty, has things growing in it, um, and a cistern is usually dark, um, and it's under someone's control, whereas this living water is outside, it's springing up, and the only control that it's under is God's. So there's this beautiful contrast there. And then, of course, Jesus saying, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And part of the reason this is so important is that in this post-Christian, secularized culture in which we live, the idea is that there are many streams, there are many truths, 
and that you just need to find your own truth and speak it, and somehow that will satisfy you. And the problem with that is there's just a little tiny bit of truth in that. The tiny bit of truth is that each person is made in God's image and made unique, and that person is unique. But all of us are fallen, and we need to come into relationship with Jesus Christ so that we can shed uh, what one writer has called the dreadful disguise and disfigurement of sin. And so the only way that that's possible is in Christ. But the problem, even in the church, is that we don't trust the gospel. We want to have the gospel in this or the gospel in that. And there's a great letter um, in Screwtape Letters about this, uh, about saying if you're patient, uh, the Christian is going to go to church. One of the best ways to get him sidetracked is to get him involved in some kind of Christian movement. And so he says there are any number of possibilities. Christianity and spelling reform. Christianity and this. Christianity and that. Because he said, invariably, the whatever it's the and blank, the and blank will become the focus instead of Jesus. And I think there's a lot of truth to that. I could preach a whole sermon here, but I'm not going to. Um, sin and its consequences. This is one of the most brilliant things in this book. We're going to see this working its way through. Uh, because we, well, I shouldn't say we, I, uh, and I think perhaps some of you, when we think about sin and we think about failing, we often think that when we have failed or we have sinned, that we have somehow like fallen off the planet of the possibility of following God's will. And we've blown it so badly that there is no hope for us. And there's an element of truth in that as well, that absent Jesus, we are without hope. But what Lewis does such a masterful job with in this story is showing how even our failures and sins can be redeemed and worked through so that even though if we weren't on the straight, short path, we might go sort of sideways for a while, but the Lord can bring us back to where he desires for us to be. And part of what you see here is Jill showing off at the beginning, uh, and there's a another subtext here about what you might call big sins and little sins or grievous sins and minor sins. Uh, and in our culture and in the Christian world, particularly in the Bible Belt, um, we have some sins that we think, oh, that is bad. <laughs> and other sins that are just perfectly fine, like gossip and gluttony. Anyone? Um, so part of, the, part of the issue is that we get those things all mixed up, and we forget that all of those things are rebellion against God. And so part of what Lewis is doing here is showing us that big sins, like showing off and causing Eustace to fall off of this enormous cliff, um, that is a really big spectacular sin. But also Eustace's irritability and telling Jill to shut up, that also causes major problems. So it's not just that Big sins are bad. It's that all sin takes us out of and away from following the will of God. Um, the third theme that was so important is Aslan's call and task. 
And this is going to get developed more as we go into the story, but I think it's such an important word for us today. And the reason that it's so important is that so many people have bought the lie that starts in elementary school of make good grades, make good grades so you can get into a really good college. And if you make really good grades when you're in the really good college, then you will be able to get a really good job when you get out where you will make lots of money. And when you make lots of money, even if you're doing something you hate, if you're making lots of money, then you're going to be happy. And it's going to be wonderful. But the problem with that is it's a lie. It doesn't make you happy just to have money, especially if you're doing something that you hate. And so the other aspect of that that's so wrong-headed in our culture for Christians is that it used to be, and remember Lewis is a medievalist. He used to call himself a dinosaur, like a dinosaur left over that was still like walking the earth. Um, because he had such a belief that God had made each person unique with wonderful gifts and capabilities, and that you were made for a purpose to change the world, to have an incredible role in the kingdom of God. But the problem is that we have forgotten the glorious destiny for which we were made, and we've just decided to take up slavery and the world economy instead. And there's an overused sermon illustration about this, but I can't help myself, so just bear with me. Um, and the sermon illustration is there are four little chicks that are being brought up in the chicken coop. And they're brought up by the mother hen, and one of the chicks is bigger than the others and is very gawky and gangly, and the other chickens make fun of this gangly-looking chicken and pick on him and all of that. And as he gets bigger, his feathers look different and everything else. And he's picked on and picked on, and he wanders around in this little coop trying to get food, and is just miserable and feels sorry for himself. Until one day, this bird of prey is flying over them, and the bird of prey swoops down, and the mother hen is trying to like, scatter all of the chicks to get them to safety. But this bird of prey swoops down and picks up this gangly, awkward chicken and takes him away. And they fly up and up and up, and the gangly little chicken is just waiting to be eaten. And then they're taken to the nest, and in the nest there are other odd, gangly-looking chickens. <laughs> and this other beautiful, giant bird comes flying in and says, What was that eagle doing in the chicken coop but i think you know the point of that is pretty clear that you can be an eagle but if you are living in a chicken coop and you think that that's all that there is you will stop acting like an eagle and act like a chicken and the point is that we are made for so much more than drudgery in the workplace that is not what god designed you for that is not what the abundance, okay, sorry. Um, <laughs> not going to preach a sermon on that because we haven't even gotten to tonight yet. Uh, but part of the deal here is that you see a task put before them that is world-changing and it is utterly beyond their capabilities. There is no way 
that they could do this. And it forces them to depend on Aslan, which, of course, is the point of the whole thing. And one of the great moments that Jill has is after he says to her this crazy, impossible task, she doesn't say, no way, you are crazy. Or as I said last week, here am I, send Aaron. Um, (laughs) But she says to him, how? And Aslan is very gentle with her and says, perhaps you do not understand as well as you think. Um, But he promises to help her, and that brings us to the signs. And this is arguably the greatest theme in this book. Um, Lewis does such a masterful job of talking about the signs and scripture um, clearly being the analog here. I think even Lewis, even though he'd never like to admit that there was something where there was a one-to-one correspondence, he would say the signs are scripture. Um, And I hope you read, there's a great quotation from Philip Ryken, who's the president of Wheaton College, about how the silver chair changed his life because it made him realize when he read this that Lewis was talking about scripture and that if you started to do what Aslan says to do with the signs, if you took that to heart and started treating scripture that way in your life, that it would be utterly transformative. And we talked about how uh, Lewis very consciously echoes the language of Deuteronomy 6 uh, about talking about the Lord's word when you are walking by the way and when you rise in the morning, when you go to bed at night. Um, Deuteronomy 6 is the great chapter where the Shema, the Jewish prayer, those recited multiple times a day, is from that chapter. It's one of the most familiar chapters um, in the Old Testament for uh, the Jews of Jesus' time period. And so that is brought up over and over and over again here. And it reminds me of that beautiful line in The Weight of Glory, which if you didn't ever listen to all of The Weight of Glory please go on YouTube and just take some time and listen to it because it is amazing. But remember, Lewis says, you and I have need of the strongest spell that can be found to wake us from the evil enchantment of worldliness which has been laid upon us for nearly a 100 years. And the idea is that we need to be awakened out of this torpor that we're in um, from our culture. And part of that is by having the signs in front of us. And I love the way Lewis talks about this because when he's giving the signs to Jill, they're up in Aslan's country on the top of the cliff. And he says, here, it's easy to remember the signs because I'm right here and the air is clear and the sun is shining. But when you go down into Narnia, the air will be thick and there will be many other things and you will be distracted and it'll be harder to hear and to understand and because of that it's all the more important to memorize to remember 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 and the other aspect of Deuteronomy 6 which goes right along with what Jeff was preaching tonight um, is that passage that says do not when you when you enter into the land that the Lord has provided for you and you take on the houses you did not build and the vineyards you did not plant, and the cities you did not build, do not forget the Lord your God who brought you out of slavery in Egypt. Because we are all too prone to just take the house and the vineyard and everything else and think we earned it, and we forget God. And so this remembering 
is a theme that's going to come up over and over and over again. All right, so now that I've finished reviewing, <laughs> although these themes are going to keep working themselves through, there are four particular themes tonight, um, one of which is a uh, deepening of one thing we've already talked about. The first one is identity and courage. The second one, which is the one we've already started to talk about, sin, small and large, have consequences. Thirdly, comfort is the enemy of the quest. And fourthly, to carry out Aslan's call, we often need people very different from us. So all of these are things that I think are very relevant for our culture. And identity and courage, this is going to be a theme that we see over and over again. And I want to just take a step back from that for a minute and think about, this is one of the reasons these are such wonderful children's books, is that everything that Lewis is writing is teaching. And is teaching building character and showing people who are making choices and the good choices um, are reinforced in lots of ways, and the bad choices are usually brought into redemption somehow. So it's uh, something so important in children's literature. And there's this great scene that takes place uh, where they've been in the castle, they've missed Caspian, they're, Eustace and Jill are mad at each other and blaming it on each other that it didn't work out but they also are pretty happy to be in this really swanky castle um, and a big banquet and maids waiting on them and beautiful bedrooms, and they're awakened in the night, dragged out into the night by these creepy two-and-a-half-foot-high owls. And owls are always a little creepy, you know? Um, They are birds of prey. They're supposed to be wise, but they're also birds of prey. And they're dragged out of this comfortable castle They are told they're going to fly on the back of these owls. And you might be thinking, oh, I wonder where Harry Potter got some of these things. Uh, So anyway, they're flying on these owls, and they're taken to this abandoned tower in the dark. And they go flying in on the back of this owl through a hole in the wall into this tower. And then they're unceremoniously dumped off in this room in the tower that is full of smelly owls. Ooh. I mean, who wants to be... Ugh. Yeah, so there they are. And they don't know quite what's going on. They don't know, are these owls going to kill them? What, you know, what, what is happening here? And Eustace, Eustace Scrub, of all people, stands up when they're talking about Caspian, the king, and he interrupts the owl who's speaking, which, of course, who knows? That might mean they're going to come peck you to death. He interrupts the owl who's speaking, and he says, well, I was with Caspian on that journey with him and Reepicheep the mouse and the Lord Drinian and all of them. And, and what I want to say is this, that I am the king's man, and if this parliament of owls is any sort of plot against the king, I'm having nothing to do with it. That is courage. That is courage. It is really early on in their time in Narnia. They haven't sorted out who's good, who's bad, who can be trusted, all of those things. But Eustace, and this is a great example of how Aslan has changed his heart, 
his identity has changed. And his identity has changed so that he wants to be identified with Caspian, and he will brook no disloyalty to Caspian, even if it's at the expense of his own comfort and safety and maybe even his life. So this is a very, very brave thing to do, and it is a measure of how much he has been changed. Now, the other thing about this is Caspian is someone who has devoted his whole life to trying to follow Aslan. And Eustace is choosing to be identified with those who follow Aslan in a very bold way here. So part of what is interesting about this is that even in the midst of this crazy environment where he is, he makes this bold statement and it shows you that his sense of who he is has shifted, that he senses that he belongs to someone, not to himself. He's not just a free agent anymore. So that is something that is really important that is going to come up again in multiple circumstances, and you will see um, how Lewis builds on this theme. And one of the reasons this is so important is that in our culture, we are so afraid of offending anyone that people are not honest about who they are. Now, notice that he is not pejorative. He doesn't say, you stinky, dirty owls, I judge you, you know, or any of that kind of stuff. He's just talking about who he is and where his loyalties lie in a very matter-of-fact way. And he is not afraid to be identified with those with whom he is in relationship. So I think there's a lot to learn from that. The second thing is sins, small and large, have consequences. Now, this little dialogue is a great piece uh, that shows you a little bit about the fact that Eustace, who's just done this wonderful thing um, that we just talked about, also isn't all the way there yet. So I'm just going to read this. Then the king was an old friend of yours, said Jill. A horrid thought had struck her. I should jolly well think he was, said Scrub miserably, about as good a friend as a chap could have. And last time he was only a few years older than me. And to see that old man with a white beard, and to remember Caspian as he was the morning we captured the Lone Islands, or in the fight with the sea serpent. Oh, it's frightful. It's worse than coming back and finding him dead. Caspian might not agree with that. <laughs> oh, shut up, said Jill impatiently. It's far worse than you think. We've muffed the first sign. Of course, Scrub did not understand this. That's because Scrub told her to shut up when the chief first came into Narnia. Then Jill told him about her conversation with Aslan and the four signs and the task of finding the lost prince which had been laid upon them. So you see, she wound up, you did see an old friend, just as Aslan said, and you ought to have gone and spoken to him at once, and now you haven't, and everything is going wrong from the very beginning. But how was I to know, said Scrub, if you'd only listened to me when I tried to tell you, we'd be all right, said Jill. Yes, and if you hadn't played the fool on the edge of that cliff and jolly nearly murdered me, all right, I said murder, and I'll say it again, so often as I like, so keep your hair on. We'd have come together and both known what to do. 
I suppose he was the very first person you saw, said Jill. You must have been here hours before me. Are you sure you didn't see anyone else first? I was only here about a minute before you said scrub. He must have blown you quicker than me. Making up for lost time, the time you lost. Don't be a perfect beast, scrub, said Jill. So you can see they've messed up. They have both messed up. And they only have four signs for this thing to be able to work out. And they've already completely blown with no hope of recovery. The person they're supposed to talk to has sailed off on a ship. The ship is gone. So there's no, like, circling back to try to figure this out. So uh, the other thing that is interesting is that you have this little exchange when they're in the Parliament of Owls uh, where we get this little dialogue. Oh, what a to-do. If only you two had known and spoken to him at once, he'd have arranged everything, probably given you an army to go with you in search of the prince. Jill kept quiet at this and hoped Scrub would be sporting enough not to tell all the owls why this hadn't happened. He was, or very nearly. That is, he only muttered under his breath, well, it wasn't my fault. So Aslan gave this clear command that he was that Eustace was to speak to an old friend that he would see as soon as they got to Narnia. So there's no misunderstanding. It's not that the command's not clear or subject to interpretation or anything like that. It's old? Old? Well, yes, yes, exactly. Old in two senses, old friend and old friend. Um, so he gets this clear command, and the problem is that Eustace has fallen from the cliff, and then... Jill and Eustace are irritated at each other, so they don't communicate clearly, and they miss their opportunity, and they make a total mess of this. So Eustace is continuing to be changed from how petulant he was before, but he still has a tendency to bear a grudge, and he wants it to be known to the owls that it wasn't really his fault. It was her fault. She did it. You heard that line before anywhere? <laughs> the woman that you gave to be with me, she did it. Um, so anyway, Eustace falls off the cliff because of Jill. You could say that's a big sin, but the little sin about their anger and irritation is just as responsible for their having missed being able to perform this sign. So they've utterly failed, and they have no hope of being able to recover this first sign which is very important to remember. All right, the third theme, comfort, is often the enemy of the quest. And I'm going to read this little excerpt. Jill was asleep. Ever since the Owl's Parliament began, she had been yawning terribly, and now she had dropped off. She was not at all pleased at being waked up again, and at finding herself on lying on bare boards in a dusty belfry sort of place, completely dark, and almost completely full of owls. She was even less pleased when she heard that they had to set off for somewhere else, and not, apparently, for bed on the owl's back. Oh, come on, Pole, buck up, said Scrub's voice. After all, it is an adventure. I'm sick of adventures, said Joe crossly. She did, however, consent to climb onto Glimfeather's back, and was thoroughly waked up for a while by the unexpected coldness of the air when he flew out with her into the night. 
The moon had disappeared and there were no stars. Far behind her, she could see a single lighted window well above the ground, doubtless in one of the towers of Care Paravel. It made her long to be back in that delightful bedroom, snug in bed, watching the firelight on the walls. She put her hands under her cloak and wrapped it tightly around her. So Jill, not unnaturally, wants to go back to the castle. She wants to wear these beautiful clothes that have been laid out. She wants to be in this beautiful bedroom with all the hangings and the fireplace and the really cool bath and the floor and maids waiting on her and sumptuous food to eat and all of these things where she can eat, drink, and be merry. But if you've read the chapter, you'll know that as Jill experiences all these things, it says that the signs in Aslan went clear out of her mind. She was so excited about her own comfort that she had utterly forgotten that they were even on a quest. She has been seduced, if you will, by the comfort of the world. And she wants so badly to be surrounded by these comforts that she's irritated at being forced to have to give that up and do what Aslan has sent them to do. She is literally dragged or flown, uh, kicking and screaming into doing what Aslan has commanded them to do. She is not obeying with a joyful heart here. Um, And the reason is she is so concerned about her comfort. And so she's become a grumpy and unhappy accomplice who feels stuck in these circumstances against her will. Now, I'm not going to ask you to raise your hand if you have ever complained about something that you are pretty confident the Lord wants you to do, and you have muttered and complained about what he has sent your way because you liked the way it was comfortable before. But I will say that the scriptures tell us that that is a condition that is... uh, habitual for all of us who are part of the human race, that we want comfort and we want what we want when we want it and we don't like to be interfered with. But the problem with that is that if we are making our own comfort our goal, we miss the adventure, we miss the quest, and we miss the will of God. So, Uh, Lewis is making a big point here about how important it is to not be distracted by comfort. And then the next theme is that to carry out Aslan's call, we very often need people very different from us. And we talked before about how this is a big theme in Tolkien and the Fellowship of the Ring uh, and in that image that we have at the beginning of each class where you see the profiles of all of the people in the Lord of the Rings. You have an elf, you have a dwarf, you have a couple of hobbits, you've got a man, you've got a wizard, you have all these different races, people of different backgrounds, languages, ethnicities, who all need each other. Because with just one, if it was a group of all people of one race or ethnicity, They would miss out on the gifts and skills that are part of those other groups. And so being together is important. 
Now, obviously, this is drawn right out of the Bible, um, particularly 1 Corinthians 12, um, where Paul is talking about the body and saying that no part of the body can say, I don't need you to any other part of the body. And he uses you know, the great example of what if the whole body were a toe? Well, you, know, you wouldn't get very far. And that we need each other. And this is something the church has lost this idea. Sometimes we get as far as thinking about within our own church, but we forget to think about it, that the church of Jesus Christ, sorry if this is breaking anyone's bubble, it's not just St. Phillips. <laughs> Did you know that? Yes, it's not just St. Phillips. It is the church of Jesus Christ around the world, both the church militant and the church triumphant, the church that is in heaven. We are all part of that church, and we need one another, and we all have different gifts, but the problem is we have siloed ourselves. And Lewis does something very interesting here because he has these children that are literally brought in from another world, just sort of like the secret agent superhero people. He has them brought into this world to carry out this quest, but yet the person that enables it to happen is not the children, but this marsh wiggle, uh, a creature that Lewis invented. And this marsh wiggle named Puddle Glum, without this marsh wiggle named Puddle Glum, none of what Aslan told them to do could ever have been accomplished. What if they had said, you smell funny, you eat eels, you talk funny, uh-uh. We're not having anything to do with you because you are not like us. But they don't do that, uh, although they are a little skeptical, let's say. So let's listen into this dialogue. Where on earth are we? Of course, you're not on earth, asked Jill. In the wigwam of a marsh wiggle, said Eustace. A what? A marsh wiggle. Don't ask me what it is. I couldn't see it last night. I'm getting up. Let's go and look for it. How beastly one feels after sleeping in one's clothes, said Jill, sitting up. I was just thinking how nice it was not to have to dress, said Eustace. <laughs> what they found outside was quite unlike the bit of Narnia they had seen on the day before. They were on a great flat plain, which was cut into countless little islands by countless channels of water. Many wigwams, like that in which they had passed the night, could be seen dotted about, but all at a good distance from one another, for marsh wiggles are people who like privacy. Except for the fringe of the forest several miles to the south and west of them, there was not a tree in sight. Now just remember, these are children from England. Okay? Children from England. There are no wigwams in England. Um, this whole thing is like being in outer space to them and the little green men. So there was not a tree in sight. Where has the thingamy got to, I wonder, said Jill. The marsh wiggle, said Scrub, as if he were rather proud of knowing the word. I expect, hello, that must be him. And then they both saw him sitting with his back to them, fishing, about 50 yards away. He had been hard to see at first because he was nearly the same color as the marsh and because he sat so still. 
I suppose we'd better go and speak to him, said Jill. Scrub nodded. They both felt a little nervous. So he's literally green, okay? He's green. They're supposed to go talk to a green creature, okay? It's a little out of their comfort zone. Now, this is one of Pauline Bain's great illustrations. Um, you see them outside this wigwam, and you see this tall, skinny marshwiggle with this really weird hat. And um, look at his feet. Um, he has these giant webbed feet that are kind of like duck feet. Um, very, very unusual. And he has green hair. You can't really see it in the picture. But he has green sort of wispy hair that's sort of like Spanish moss. Um, so not quite your average uh, upper middle class British school child. So as this continues, uh, the story goes on. As they drew nearer, the figure turned its head and showed them a long, thin face with rather sunken cheeks, a tightly shut mouth, a sharp nose, and no beard. He was wearing a high-pointed hat like a steeple with an enormously wide, flat brim. The hair, if it could be called hair, which hung over his large ears was greeny-gray, and each lock was flat rather than round, so that they were like tiny reeds. His expression was solemn his complexion muddy, and you could see at once that he took a serious view of life. Good morning, guests, he said. Though when I say good, I don't mean it won't probably turn to rain, or it might be snow or fog or thunder. You didn't get any sleep, I dare say. Please, we don't know your name, said Scrub. Puddleglum's my name, but it doesn't matter if you forget it. I can always tell you again. The children sat down on each side of him. They now saw he had very long legs and arms, so that although his body was not much bigger than a dwarf's, he would be taller than most men when he stood up. The fingers of his hands were webbed like a frog's, and so were his bare feet, which dangled in the muddy water. He was dressed in earth-colored clothes that hung loose about him. I'm trying to catch a few eels to make an eel stew for our dinner, said Puddleglum, though I shouldn't wonder if I didn't get any, and you won't like them much if I do. So just imagine yourself into Eustace and Jill's shoes at this moment. So they are out here in the middle of this very bizarre-looking landscape, talking to this very bizarre green creature who is making an eel stew for them to eat. Now, when you were in junior high, did you like eel stew? Yeah. So they are way, way out of their comfort zone. But one of the interesting things is that Puddleglum, minding his own business, all of a sudden the owls fly in with these human creatures that Puddleglum's never seen one of before. And all the owls tell him is that this is on the lion's business. Well, that phrase is enough for Puddleglum to put his entire life on hold and to do whatever he can to help these children and their quest. And it is a great example of the people that belong to Aslan have this bond and this fellowship and are united in this quest together in such a way that causes them to love each other and treat each other sacrificially. This is not any kind of limited commitment, shaking hands, so nice to see you sort of thing. This is real commitment. And so he drops everything, not just to aid them, but he also says, 
I am coming with you. This is an incarnational kind of service, that he's not just standing far off. He is self-sacrificially agreeing to accompany them. So you have this creature who is of a different race, lives differently in a different kind of house, eats a different kind of food, speaks differently, and he is their only hope of being able to follow the signs as Aslan commanded. It is a great illustration of how much we need each other in the body of Christ and how even the parts that we think are maybe a little weird and we don't like and are outside our comfort zone may be absolutely necessary to carrying out what it is that God has called us to. So, um, some reflection questions that, once again, we don't have time to talk about, uh, but are worth thinking about. We live in a culture that's obsessed with defining identity. Eustace boldly stands for Caspian and Aslan. How can we more courageously stand for Christ individually and as a body and define our identity in terms of belonging to him? Secondly, how can we become more sensitive to the ways that sin, both large and small, hinders us from following the word of the Lord so that we may repent? Thirdly, it has been said that the role of the church is to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. Why is comfort such a deadly enemy of boldly following Christ, and what can we do to avoid being blinded hindered and distracted by it in our own lives. And then lastly, Scripture is clear that the body of Christ needs all of its parts and that no one part is more important than another. Why is having all the parts of the body, including those who are very different from us, not only important but necessary to carrying out the work of the gospel? How are we hindered when we do not walk together? So lots of stuff to think about. Um, I would encourage you to try to, since I'm not giving you any reflection time, um, sometime during the week to try to find some reflection time. The handout has all three weeks' reflection questions on it, so I would commend those to you. Um, We are picking up speed a little bit, but we're going to slow back down um, for some other chapters, so... Um, it's kind of like the difference between our time and Narnia time. Um, when you come to class, you never know how fast we may go. So uh, let me go ahead and close this with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for um, the wisdom that is in your word. Lord, the wisdom of your holy scriptures. And Lord, we thank you for the way that your servant, C.S. Lewis, brings that wisdom um, for us to see through a different window and enables us to perhaps appreciate things uh, that we have forgotten. Lord, we pray that you would help us uh, to take to heart these lessons and these hard questions, um, that you would use these things to draw us closer to you, that we might follow hard after Jesus Christ. And we pray all of these things in his name. Amen. Amen. Thank you all so much for being here.